Well, uh, we're going to turn our attention together to God's Word. I'd love for you to turn to Matthew 24, and we're going to continue uh, into this great section. As I mentioned last week, it is the um, last significant chunk of teaching that Jesus gives before his death, resurrection, and ascension. Uh, it's the last of five great discourses in the book of Matthew that we read through. Uh, and uh, Jesus has some really important things to say in Matthew 24 and 25 about the time between when he's going to ascend into heaven and when he's going to return from heaven and make all things new. Um, so he's talking about the time in which you and I live right now. Um, and he does that in response to some questions that uh, his disciples ask him. But I don't know how you feel as you think about when we're reading parts of the Bible that are to do with prophecy, about uh, Jesus explaining what's going to happen at the end of all things and therefore how we should live in between. And a lot of time people skip over the last bit that I said, the how should we live in between, and they focus on the, okay, what's actually going to be happening right at the end? What do we need to look out for? When's it going to happen? And sometimes the conversations around that get a little bit heated and a little bit complicated and so a lot of people tend to back away from it because um, it can just be a little bit kind of hard to understand and it brings out a lot of strong opinions in people and it brings out the conspiracy theorists and all of that sort of stuff. Biblical prophecy can be a little bit tricky. No, not a little bit. It can be really, really tricky. Um, so why should we get embroiled in this stuff? Why should we spend too much time reading passages of Scripture which are talking about the end times? Why not focus on the bits that are talking about the church and what we should be doing right now or helping us to learn from the past? Why not leave the future to God and just focus on the present? But as you'll see, as Jesus speaks into these issues of what the end is going to be like and therefore what the time that we live in now needs to be about, uh, you'll see that having deep convictions about the future will give you an unshakable peace and an unshakable purpose in the present. In a country that is continuing to walk away from what it thinks is Christianity, and we looked at that last week, cultural Christianity, where identification with Jesus is becoming increasingly unusual and increasingly difficult, we need more than ever to have an unshakable peace guarding our hearts. And we need to have a purpose, a strong purpose, that helps us to persevere when things get difficult to be guiding our hands. So Jesus knows that's what his disciples will need, both the disciples he's speaking to in this moment and his disciples like you and I who are following him centuries later. And over the next few days, for those who are listening to Jesus' words in the moment that we're going to be reading about, um, the world is going to just be turned upside down for them. Um, and those religious leaders who we've been reading about in Matthew's Gospel, who have their sights set firmly on Jesus and they're trying to get rid of him, well, once they've accomplished their mission, who are they going to turn against next? It's going to be the disciples who will start to cop it. And so Jesus knows that these guys are in for a really rough time. But he also knows that God is going to be doing some pretty amazing things. And if you know the story of the Gospels and the book of Acts well, you might think about after Jesus has ascended and after that terrible period of waiting is over and uncertainty, the Holy Spirit comes and the church is born and so many people are saved and lives transformed and whole cultures shaped by the truth of Jesus and the power of the proclamation of Jesus. But that only comes with the willingness of these disciples to also be persecuted for the name of Jesus, to also recognise that they are in a hostile world and to be able to reconcile those things. Unless they're willing to live with a greater purpose than the stuff of this life, they're not going to 
have the courage to proclaim Jesus and see the world change. Unless they're willing to endure persecution, they won't get to witness the power of God for salvation. So Jesus wants you and I to know how to make the most of the time God has given us. Because like the disciples experienced in their futures, in our future the world is going to become a more hostile and scary place. And we've seen the signs of that already. How are we going to be people like them who see the power of God to bring salvation despite the fact that there is also increasing persecution? And maybe you can't unlink those. Maybe they always go together. So let's pray as we dive into this uh, part of God's Word together. God, as we look in Matthew uh, 24 and 25, and as we really, again, just set a bit of a foundation today, uh, Lord, would you be pleased to speak to us through your Holy Spirit? We know that your Word is useful for shaping men and women to do the good works that you've planned for us to do. Uh, It is important for us to know where our foundation is in life and to be able to cling to the only hope for our souls, Jesus our Saviour. So we pray that you might drive us deeper into you and make us live more boldly for you as a result of our time together today. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So last week we asked the question, has Australia abandoned God? As we think about the time we are living in right now, um, is is our cultural moment as a nation one of moving away from God? And we discovered last week no statistician can tell you the answer to that question. They can tell you that Australia is walking away from Christianity and what it thinks Christianity is. But the problem is that the Christianity Australia is abandoning is less about following Jesus and more about certain cultural distinctives like uh, being christened and where you get married and where you have your funeral and and where you go on Easter and Christmas and those sorts of things. Um, There's a bit of kind of priestly jargon, uh, which is uh, that the priest is there for the hatch, match and dispatch. Have you heard that one before? Um, so the hatch, okay, when, when babies are born, you've got to go to the, to the church and get them christened. The match, hey, when you want to get uh, married, you go to the church and you get married. The dispatch, well, that's where your funeral's going to be. And in the olden days, um, probably that's where the cemetery was as well. And so they take you out the side. And that was people's idea of the significance of the church in their lives. It was for the hatch, match and dispatch stuff. Uh, it was never meant to be about that. Christianity, uh, as you hear it from the lips of Jesus and from his apostles in the Bible, um, has very little to do with what happens at those events in your life and much more to do with a relationship with Jesus that is at the centre of your life. And because cultural Christianity, this idea of, you know, I know where my parents kind of went to church, I know what denomination we're a part of, I know what my kind of tribal affiliation is, because that doesn't actually have the power to change your life and to shape who you are, and it certainly has no power to change your eternal destiny, um, it's not a bad thing that people are walking away from that misunderstanding of what Christianity is. But it's still a painful process. Because in the midst of people walking away from the hatch, match and dispatch kind of thing, Christianity is just about those rituals and ceremonies, as long as you do those, you're okay. As people walk away from that, they're also walking away from Christian morality. Um, and on the one hand, they're thinking, now we're free. We don't have to keep obeying all those rules about you know, life, about sex, about money, about time, about you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, and they think, you know, I can do my own thing. And that feels liberating until you realise that doing our own thing actually leads us down paths that always end up in the same place. They always end up in destruction. 
no matter how many warnings uh, God has given through his word, whenever people, uh, like Isaiah 58 talks about, uh, 53, sorry, go their own way, what happens? When we, like sheep, walk astray, we end up lost. We end up needing somebody to come and find us and bring us back. And we, as people who actually know Jesus in this cultural moment, we get to be the people who God is using to go find people. And maybe they walked away from what they thought was Christianity, but maybe they need to be brought back to a relationship with Jesus as the only one who gives life meaning. So, I want you to think, though, of what it might have felt like for the disciples um, when they were in a similar cultural moment to us, where not only are they witnessing their nation kind of becoming increasingly disinterested in a real relationship with God and increasingly obsessed with empty religion, empty ritual, you know, going through the processes, political stuff, um, power games, all that kind of stuff, and they're seeing it slide morally. Um, imagine what they would have felt when Jesus said these words. Because regardless of the fact that their nation is headed in a bad direction, they still love it. They still love the people of their nation. And then Jesus says this. As Jesus left after having a confrontation with the religious leaders and was going out of the temple, his disciples came up and called his attention to its buildings. And he replied to them, Do you see all these things? Now, I don't know if you've ever seen a model of the temple in Jerusalem. Um, I've got various pictures that I've put up from time to time, but none of them do it justice because it's not there anymore and no one can take a photo. But it was, just, it was one of the wonders of the world. In fact, some authors have said of all of the currently standing you know, great buildings, great things that people look at and say, wow, that is, that is truly wonderful. Think pyramids and all that kind of stuff. So they say that Herod's temple was actually the most glorious to see. Um, at that time in history. It, it was just renowned across the Roman Empire, across the, the known world. And, and it's part of their nation. Um, who feels proud of the Sydney Harbour Bridge or the Opera House? You, know, you see it on postcards and say, oh, it's Australia. It makes you feel proud of Australia. These guys had something so much better than that. Um, it was the renown of the world and it gave them a sense of national pride. And as they look at this stuff and they call Jesus' attention to it, this is what Jesus says. Do you see all these things? These amazing things, huge, huge buildings uh, overlaid with gold and, and with all of this glorious stuff uh, associated with it. Truly, I tell you, not one stone will be left here on another that will not be thrown down. Not one stone. Not any of the section that they've just pointed out, which is possibly um, the temple itself. It would all be torn down. In fact, um, those, those buildings of the temple, you know the reason that the Romans were so um, diligent to tear every stone down? Because when they burned the place, the heat was so intense that all of the gold that was overlaid across the building melted down into the cracks. And so they wanted to tear all the blocks apart to get out all the gold and really do a good job of ransacking the place. So that's um, the fulfilment of what Jesus is talking about, and we'll, we'll get into that in coming weeks. But imagine being one of the disciples and hearing that this place that you love and that you're so proud of and has been so much a part of your own spiritual journey, you've come here to worship God ever since you were born. This is the place your parents brought you and presented offerings to thank God for your birth. This is so important to you, this place. And Jesus has just told you that it's going to be thrown down. It's all going to fall. And that's got to have hit their hearts pretty hard. That's got to have filled their heads with questions. Why would God let this place fall? And this is the place we come to worship him. So just like our hearts have been heavy when we hear reports of how Christianity in our nation is in decline and we wonder what the future may hold, imagine how their hearts were feeling. 
when Jesus says, well, this is the future of the religion of your nation, the religion that you've grown up with. So let's look at the questions they asked in response once they'd had time to mould this over a bit. You know, they've gone away, they've walked up to the Mount of Olives, they, their minds would have been racing, man, what's going on here? And then together they come back to Jesus with these questions in verse 3 of Matthew 24. While he, being Jesus, was sitting on the Mount of Olives, his disciples approached him privately and said, tell us, when will these things happen? And what's the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And so these questions from Jesus' disciples, and by the way, we don't need to think that it was just the 12. We often assume that when we read the word disciples. We have no idea whether it was just the 12 or whether it was that larger group that travelled with Jesus. I suspect it was the latter. I think there was a whole bunch of people listening to Jesus about this. But these were his close companions. These were the ones who travelled with him, who loved him and had listened to his teaching. And they want to know uh, when these things will happen, what is the sign of your coming, and of the end of the age. Now, as Jesus spends the next two chapters in Matthew's Gospel answering these questions, I want to keep in mind the disciples still hadn't wrapped their heads around what Jesus had been telling them about his death and his resurrection. They still expected that Jesus was going to uh, reveal his full power and glory at some point, and they were wondering as they were uh, travelling with Jesus day after day, when's it going to happen? And the word translated as coming in verse 3 that you can see there, uh, what is the sign of your coming, that for, for many of us would uh, kind of give the idea of, okay, so we know you're going away, what's the sign of your coming back? Is that what you tend to think as you look at that verse? Um, and we know from later on in history, Jesus did go away. So we're very interested, what's the sign of his coming back? But for those guys, they weren't thinking that he would go away and then need to come back. What they were thinking about, and the, the, the root word here is parousia, um, and it occurs several times through the New Testament. And basically what it is, it's the full revelation that you are here. So think about the experience of the disciples so far, this group who have been travelling with Jesus, listening to his teaching, watching him do miracles, and some of them even got to go up on a mountain and see him shining like the sun, revealing something of his true glory. And they got to see Moses and Elijah speaking with him and the voice of God the Father saying, this is my son. So they've seen the glory of Jesus. And this question is really asking... Tell us, Jesus, when are you going to show everyone that? When are you going to finally announce that you are here? God the Son is here. They've just watched the religious leaders reject Jesus the man. Uh, they've watched despite after miracle, after miracle, after miracle, teaching after teaching after teaching, sign after sign after sign. They've turned their back on him and they're kind of saying, Jesus, isn't it time that you just show them? You just kind of blow them away and say, guys... This really is me. You better not turn your back on me. Because that's exactly what they've done. In fact, they're doing worse than that. They're planning to kill him. And these guys, they can't wait for Jesus to make his presence truly known. Wouldn't you love to see that in Australia? You know, people have all kinds of crazy ideas about God, crazy ideas about Christianity. Don't you want God to just say, bang, this is it, guys? And you say, yes, we were right. You know, we knew. Um, and so there's this natural longing that these guys have uh, that they expressed to Jesus on this occasion. But Jesus has kind of thrown a little curveball at them. He says, hey, this temple, which is where they expect this is all going to happen, after all, the temple's where people come to worship, Jesus, worship God. Uh, where better place for Jesus to come, reveal himself, and to have all the nations flood there in order to worship, Jesus, worship him? 
After all, there's plenty of Old Testament prophecies that say that's going to happen. So they're expecting this to go on, and then Jesus said, now all this is going to fall. And they're like, that kind of doesn't fit how we thought things were going to play out. I mean, Jesus has been telling them about his coming death and resurrection, but again, that didn't fit their narrative, their timeline. So they've kind of just put that awkward weirdness to the side. Let's get on with you know, what we're really here to do. So naturally they have these questions. Okay, so there's something different here than what we, we thought was going to happen. Tell us, Jesus, what's all this about? And they have one basic series of events in mind. Okay, so is something disastrous going to happen and then you're going to fix it and that's when you're going to show your glory? What, what's actually going to happen here? Let's look at the three questions they've actually asked a little bit closer. Number one, when Jesus has said, um, all these things will fall, not one stone will be left on another, their first question is, well, when are all these things going to happen? In other words, when will the temple be destroyed? Second question is, when will Jesus reveal his glory? And the third question is, when will this age end? And they've shot those questions out one after the other because they actually think all of these things are going to happen really quickly together. Now, those three questions might not be the questions that you woke up this morning going, you know what, I would really like to know. After all, the first one of those has already happened. Um, but... As we hear Jesus over chapter 24 and 25 of Matthew respond to these questions, you'll realise these are actually really important questions for us as well. And they can make a huge difference, not only to our understanding of what's going on in the world and who God is, what his plans are, but they can make a huge difference to our hearts and the way that we live our lives. And we're going to start today just by looking at something that Jesus knew as he began to answer these questions that the disciples didn't know. And it's something we've gone over a few years ago together as a church family, but I want to go over it again, one, to refresh memories, and two, because a bunch of us weren't here when we did it last time, uh, and build a bit of a framework so you can understand how Jesus is going to answer these questions over the next two chapters. So... I want to show you a really, really simple way to understand whenever the Bible is talking about future events. Okay, disciples have just said to Jesus, hey, what's going to happen in the future? Let's, let's um, look a little bit more closely about how the Bible speaks to the future. First of all, how many hills are there on the screen? Whew, I was so glad that I got that answer. There were three hills on the screen, fairly obviously. But if we change position so that we rotate and we're looking from the other side, how many hills are there? Now, if you already know there are three, you can kind of make out the shapes and say, oh, there's, there's three hills. But if you didn't know there were three, you might look at that and go, oh, that's one thing that I'm looking at. And it's got different colours and shades and aspects, but it's one thing. Um, so uh, the other thing about this perspective is how far apart are those hills? From the other perspective, you could see exactly kind of how far apart they were. From this perspective, you'd only be guessing. Even if you knew there were three, you wouldn't be able to tell how much time elapses between them. And that's a little bit like when the Bible talks about the future. Um, God, looking from his point of view, sees three things, let's say. But when we rotate, sometimes they might, he might, the way he describes them might sound to us like he's describing one thing. And even if we know that there's more than one thing, we don't always know how long uh, a period of time is between each of those things. Let me give you an example. This is a really famous one, and I like sticking with the easy ones. So Isaiah 61. This is um, uh, from the prophet Isaiah prophesying centuries before uh, the birth of Jesus. And there was a lot of stuff going on, but we're not going to kind of get into his story too much. Um, but this is what he says, Isaiah 61 from verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is on me, 
because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the day of our God's vengeance, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who mourn in Zion, to give them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, festive oil instead of mourning, and splendid clothes instead of despair. Right, so that's what Isaiah had to say to the people of his time. So think about that close hill. There's stuff going on that Isaiah is talking about and saying, hey guys, we're in the middle of a tough time. I've told you about tougher times to come, but God has also given me this job to tell you about something better in the future. And those things are going to be fulfilled in the experience of Isaiah's nation. But then Jesus comes along centuries later and he reads from this history this is what Isaiah said to the people of his day. The Spirit of the Lord God is on me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And Jesus, and you can see that we're now in that middle hill moment, he's acknowledging the fact, um, even not verbally, that there was a hill before this. this these words were given to Isaiah. These words were fulfilled in the story of the nation that Isaiah was a part of in their experience of what God did at their time in history. But then Jesus does something surprising. He says, today, after he's gone and sat down, today these words have been fulfilled in your hearing. And like, oh, wow. We thought those words were about what happened back there on that hill. Actually, they're also about what's happening right here in the ministry of Jesus now. But do you notice anything about what Jesus has done there? He didn't finish it. He actually stopped mid-sentence. And do you know why? Because the rest of what Isaiah wrote wasn't going to be fulfilled by Jesus in his first coming to earth. It's going to be fulfilled by Jesus in his second coming to earth. And as we then watch, as the Gospels record the history and as other historical sources uh, record what happened in the life of Jesus, we see him do all of those things he talked about in Isaiah 61. Exactly but we don't see him do any of the things he didn't talk about because he knew that he wasn't there to fulfil all those things yet. When he comes back again, he will. It's an amazing example of this principle that there is a near fulfilment. Uh, when God gives uh, a word about the future to a prophet, Old Testament, New Testament, that usually refers to something that's going to happen fairly soon or, or in a period of time that God often describes. But then... You often have, in those uh, prophecies given before the, the arrival of Jesus, you often have an aspect of that which is actually going to be fulfilled in Jesus' first ministry and in the start of the church age. And then you can sometimes have uh, things that are only going to be fulfilled in the second coming of Jesus and in the start of his eternal kingdom. So the disciples... When they've asked Jesus this question, hey, tell us, when are these things going to happen? You know, when's, when, when's the temple going to be torn down? Um, and what's the sign of your coming? When are you going to reveal yourself and let everybody know that you really are the Son of God? And what's the signs of the end of the age? When are you going to wrap up all this rebellion and put an end to sin forever and just make everything new? And they're thinking, uh, there's, this is one thing that we're, we're wanting to know about, but there's a bit of a process to it. Jesus actually knew what they didn't. These are separate things. And over the next couple of chapters, he's going to describe how each of those questions get answered in different ways uh, as we go through Matthew 24 and 25 together. He's going to give a time frame for the first of these things. And what's the first thing that they asked about? When's the temple going to get destroyed? 
And Jesus will give them a time frame for that. But he's not going to talk about those second questions, uh, second and third questions they asked about, about the sign of his coming uh, when, the, when this age uh, is uh, finished and when the new age will begin. Uh, he's not going to give them a specific timeline for that, but he is going to give them some things to look out for. And that's what we're going to get into uh, over coming weeks. But for today, I really want us to uh, get our head around this concept, this concept of the hills of prophecy, um, because it'll help you uh, in any part of the scripture that you're reading. Whenever God speaks of the future, it'll help you to remember to, to keep this in mind. Um, what's going on in the situation? There's great things to learn there. What's going on in the first coming of Jesus? How did that fulfill this prophecy? How might the second coming of Jesus fulfill this prophecy as well? See, we stand at a time in history when we can look back and see the near fulfilment of a whole bunch of Old Testament prophecies. I love reading the Old Testament. Um, I love reading those times where God gives his prophet uh, a word of instruction or tells him something that's going to happen in the future. And then you read on in the story and you see it happen exactly the way God said. You say, see that? Um, God knows what he's doing. I love seeing the fulfilment of God's word in those stories. And it happens over and over and over again. And I also love uh, seeing how the first coming of Jesus fulfilled a bunch of those prophecies as well. Um, and God's um, complete and perfect fulfilment of everything he prophesies is absolutely amazing. Um, and, and we don't have time today to go through all of those prophecies, um, but they are so frequent through the Bible. Uh, one of my favourites is in the book of Daniel. Um, and if you read in Daniel 9, there's, there's this prophecy about what's going to be happening in a, a whole lot of kingdoms in the world. And again, I won't go into the detail of that, but one of the interesting aspects of that is that God actually gives the prophet Daniel a timeline between when uh, the, the Jews were carted away into exile in Babylon and to when the Messiah will come. Um, and, and when you actually go back in history and you count up through you know, the records of how long different kings reigned and all those different ways that we have of dating events in history, you realise that when Jesus was born, um, as the scripture says, he was born just at the right time. God always knew when Jesus was going to be born. And you look at what he'd said to Daniel over, over four centuries earlier, and it was spot on perfect to the year that Jesus actually was born. How is that possible? When you can look at those manuscripts and date them and know they were written before the birth of Christ, so this wasn't a story made up after the fact to kind of knit everything together and say, oh, look, isn't this amazing? No, these are ancient historical records that to the year point to when our Saviour would be born. There's no explanation for it. So knowing about the hills of prophecy and, and knowing that as we can look back over those first fulfilments, what God did in those ancient stories and in the way that they spoke about the first coming of Jesus and see time after time after time again that they were accurate, that's got to do something to build your faith, doesn't it? And to give you a confidence that as we start tuning in over coming weeks to what Jesus says is going to be happening, that we know we can trust what God has to say on these subjects. Now, um, again, I'll just remind you of what Jesus did at Isaiah 61. Um, what would it have felt like for those people to be hearing this familiar passage of Scripture read to them and to be finished halfway through a sentence, like at a comma, not a full stop, a comma, and for Jesus to say, this bit's being fulfilled right now in your presence? Wouldn't that have made you go, why not read the whole section and then say it's being fulfilled? 
Imagine having been one of those people after the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus who's hearing from the apostles, okay, this is what Jesus was here to do, and going, oh, that makes so much sense. That's why he stopped there, because he was going to do these things. He was going to free people from bondage to sin, but he wasn't going to make all things new yet. He wasn't going to bring everything under his control yet. He's giving people time to hear about him and to choose to be a part of his kingdom. Ah, oh, it's so obvious. Wasn't obvious at the time, was obvious in hindsight. So pastorally, how does this make a difference to our lives and to our hearts? Can I remind you that God's never surprised how things turn out? Ever been surprised by the ups and downs of your life? Ever been knocked for a six when something's happened and you've gone, man, that is such a kick in the guts? Um, or elated, ooh, didn't expect that. God's never been surprised by how things turn out. And his love He's always there for us in the midst of that. And his power and his grace, as uh, the Apostle Paul said when Paul was saying, God, won't you change things? And God was never surprised by the hardship Paul was going through. He said, Paul, my grace is made perfect in this. And this is actually going to be good. Um, God's never surprised by the things that are going on in our lives. Can I remind you that God always keeps every single promise, no matter who or what stands in the way. So please get to know everything the Bible says to you about what you can expect from God. Ever felt so much like a failure, like God will never forgive me now. Man, I've just done one too many things. Uh, What does the Bible say about that? Because although you might be feeling rubbish and worthless and shame-filled and all that kind of stuff, what does the Bible say? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will do it. He will do it. There's no conditions attached to it. He will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So understanding what God says to you is so important because how you feel about yourself, how you feel about God, what you hear from other people so often, sometimes tragically, even in churches, what people are hearing isn't actually true of what God truly says. So get to know what he says to you. You can count on that. He's never surprised by anything that goes on in life and he always does exactly what he will say. Jesus has promised to build his church. He's promised to never leave us or forsake us. He's told us that we will have trouble in this life but to take heart because he has already overcome the world. Like the disciples, we're going to find there are times in life when things aren't going the way that we thought they would. But we have more than enough evidence as we look back over those hills of prophecy and say, okay, well, what's already come before? What happened in those near fulfilments? What happened in the first coming of Jesus? We have more than enough evidence to look back over history and know that he who promised is faithful. And if that objective evidence alone isn't enough, God also generously promises his Holy Spirit, a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. So if you're unsettled, by what is going on in your world. And if you're finding it hard to trust the one who saved you, take it to the Lord in prayer. Because he's promised that that internal witness will also bring peace to your hearts and help you to live with purpose in life. The Holy Spirit can do that so that you find grace in your hour of need. And the Holy Spirit is a free gift available to all who ask God. So will you let the quiet presence of the Holy Spirit direct you or remind you of the promises in God's word? Will you let his peace uh, fill you and still your anxious thoughts? 
And finally, God's word invites us to encourage one another even more as we see the day of Christ's return growing closer. So as we start to look into the detailed events of Matthew 24 uh, in particular, you'll find some of that can be a little bit unsettling. Uh, And the times that approach Christ's return will be difficult times. And we draw together in order to draw strength from one another. That's something that the church has been made for. Will you make sure that you are getting together regularly with other followers of Jesus? Not people who ticked a box on a census form and have the same label or cultural heritage as you, but people who love building their lives on Jesus. Love to remind each other to keep looking to him every day, making every day count for his good purposes in the world. Even though the world hasn't yet seen Jesus' glory, we can choose to be among those who by faith see that and are changed by it. Jesus has many more gifts to give us on this subject and that's what we're going to spend our time mining in Matthew 24 and 25 about. But I thought today we'd just start by that simple concept that Jesus knew and that they didn't yet understand of those hills of prophecy so that you in your everyday devotional life will have the discipline of looking back in history, seeing the objective truth of what God has said he will do and what God has actually done and knowing that no matter what other storylines people might make up, this is historical fact that gives you confidence to look forward to what God has promised in the future. Let's pray.